Well, according to that little ping thing, we're on. Um, so, say hi to people if you want. I have no idea who will listen to that. But, um, let's go ahead and start in prayer, and then um, we're still a little bit new to one another, so I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves and an extraordinarily invasive personal question, and then um, we will go back to last week and see if anybody's got any questions on the uh, last subject that we hit last week, and then we will dive into the Synoptic Gospels. Is that fun? Because you're all giving me weird looks. <laughs> right? Okay, maybe that's your, oh boy, that's fun looks, right? Let's pray. Our Father, you have given us the word, and we're so grateful. You give us the ability, Lord, to hit life and to have your, your light shining on it to know about your son, to understand who he is in our life and to follow him. We need help with that. We need to understand the word. And so tonight we come together to study and we ask that you would give us wisdom and give us help as we do that. I pray for each person here, Lord. We've all got things on our minds. And I just ask that like a funnel, you would bring us all together so that we're focused on what we're doing here. For the ones who have kids, that you would be with them, with the kids over there right now, and uh, just allow them to grow and to learn as we are. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Um, I'm going to introduce this a little bit later because odds are good based on you know previous five years that we're gonna have a few more trickle-ins and I want to get everybody down. So um, I'll talk about this when everybody's in, but someone yell at me, say, in 10 minutes if I haven't done it. You can all yell at me if you get a kick out of it. Let's go around, if you would, once again, just introduce yourself by first name. You can give your last name if you wish. If you really want, give your middle name. I don't care. Um, last week we asked, what was your city of birth? We had two from Japan, um, which trumped my Europe. So uh, you guys win. Um, tonight, I was just struck standing out there and, and really liking standing out there for the first time in like four months. I don't feel like I'm in an oven out there. So um, I'm curious, what is your favorite season? Now, for some of you, you have to imagine you actually have ever experienced one of those. So, you know, if you live here and you just don't know what those are, eh, just guess. Otherwise, what what is your name? What is your favorite season? You back there. My name is Patsy, and I like uh, Christmas is a season. I like Christmas. Okay. Karen? In, I think, spring... As long as I was in the Midwest, because that's when you got rains. Yes. Out here, you don't get rain until winter. Kathleen, and I think fall, because I'm so ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll go across yeah. the aisle. Fall, North Dakota. Beautiful. Fall in North Dakota. There's no fall here. Well, I mean, you know, a little bit. I have a tree that 
around about February turns a little bit yellow and orange. February. Well, February. that's a little late. Sorry, it's when it does. I'm and I think fall because I love Thanksgiving. Okay. Well, my name is Bill. And I have two seasons, but they're both in Tennessee. Okay. <laughs> I love the spring with dogwood blooms. I love the fall when the leaves are changing. So basically, the changing seasons. Summer and winter are kind of just there. Okay? My name is Mia. I like summer. It's camping. Okay. Uh, my name is Mark, and I like fall. Because it's cooler. And it's the change of the leaves. Yeah, I just yeah. like it. Okay. Indeed, like summer. Even like, you know, hot. Oh, yeah, I love it when it's hot. Okay. Okay. I'm Stacy, and I like fall as well. I'm Nana. <clears throat> um, just like what Melanie said, that, uh, what do you call this? Oh, Kathleen. That's okay. Um, she's ready for the fall, me too. And when I live in the uh, East Coast, I love spring because I'm done with snow. Even if it's raining, you know, I'm done with snow. Okay. I'm Aaron, and I like Christmas in the snow. Where would you have had that? South Dakota. <laughs> I've been in, in South Dakota for Christmas before. And there was a lot of snow here. <laughs> I, I miss seasons. And it's part of what I, I guess I was standing out there contemplating. I miss seasons. I, I haven't lived in seasons for 16 years now, but in Oregon for 15 years before that, they were modified seasons. So all of those from the Midwest, not quite the same thing, but you know, some seasons. I would go for fall. I've always enjoyed, I think, that it, get, it gets cooler. And I'm not a heat guy, so here in the Midwest, it doesn't matter. It's still, you know, amazingly hot in the summer. And um, then fall comes, and it just cools a bit, like right now. It was warm later, earlier today, but now you go out there, and it's just like, <sighs> yeah. the sun goes down. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'd go for fall. I think as I look back on my life, a lot of good things have happened. Some really bad things, but they've turned into good during the fall. So I think I just identify it that way. Um, that has absolutely nothing to do with class, but I find it interesting to do things like that. Fall has nothing to do with Cornhusker football? Uh, fall has everything to do with Cornhusker football, <laughs> but not class. Mm -hmm. So, And yes, I am aware of what's happening, and yes, I am a believer that they are rebuilding. And the current... The current coach who I watched win the championship in 97 said very clearly, guys, it could easily get worse before it gets better. So, so as painful as it is, no big surprise. Right, Aaron? Right. So all of you guys with mouths about corner square football, there's two of us in here. <laughs> Just saying. All right.
Last week we talked about the canon. Somebody tell me what that is. I put down it's a measurement of standard required. A measurement or standard. Or yeah. standard. Um, in fact, the word standard is probably the broader word for it. Um, and so in, in the context that we're talking about, it is the standard that is required for what? Inspired scripture. For us to recognize a document as scripture, as being from God. Now, um, there are obviously, or maybe not obviously, maybe you didn't know, but there are a lot of documents that some people have said they should be in the canon. And others have said, that's crazy. Um, some have said, uh, I've written some that are inspired. It's usually a dead giveaway that it's not so much. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why people will do this, but there are some qualities to those books which have been considered to have met the standard and thus are canonical. So the canon is usually just a phrase referring to all of those books that we consider to be the Bible, Scripture. And so can anybody remember any of the qualities that would say, okay, then that could be canonical? Or it's not there, it can't be. It's written by one of the apostles. Okay, authorship. And either written by one of the apostles or by someone um, working closely with. Mark, for example, uh, Luke uh, would be two examples of that. By the way, is the word apostle always a capital A? Only if it's the first 12. So yeah, capital A refers to the 12 or the 13, depending on what you want to do with Judas, uh, or the 14, depending on what you want to do with Matthias, but the ones that Jesus chose. Small a means they're doing the same thing, but they were not chosen explicitly by Jesus. And uh, historically, they did not have either the powers or the authority that those others had. Um, the word uh, apostle simply means what we would call missionary. So there are going to be letters and books written by people like that. So the question really becomes, what is apostolic about it? What else? Does it con contradict what we already know? Okay, so how does it, how does it line up mm -hmm. with what is in what we know to be scripture? So when the New Testament canon was being formed, what, what was it that it was being compared to? The Old Testament. So we need to keep that in mind. When the New Testament canon was being formed, the Old Testament had been formed and accepted for centuries. And everybody agreed, this is what it is. So is there something in the New Testament explicitly uh, contradicting something. In the Old Testament is so, we believe God does not contradict himself. So there's a hint. It's not, that's not real. That's not truly inspired. What else? Uh, 
There's two others that we talked about. One briefly, the other a little bit more. What qualities tell us it may or may not have been in the canon? What what is the canon? What are the measurements that we're looking at? Pardon? Dating. Dating is one of those. So it's 400 uh, A.D. and claiming to be apostolic. Yeah. I'm pretty sure none of them lasted that long. So obviously, then it would be spurious, right? The other, we talked about uh, in terms of the content itself. And um, so I gave the example, if you remember, of the Gospel of the Child Christ. And it, it's a book that when you look at what it says, how it says it, it, in quality, in content, it simply doesn't measure up. And it is so obviously so that anybody can tell the difference. So in that case, does anybody remember the example I gave? When he was a kid and he was playing with the other kids and they were making birds and they were laughing at him and he got mad and he made it fun. All right. So Jesus is a uh, very young child playing with all the other kids. They're playing in the mud because, you know, they played in mud. And they made little statues. And the, other, the older kids laughed at his statue. And he got mad and petulantly uh, made his fly away. All right, interesting story. But does this in any way line up with the, the description of what we have in Scripture? Yeah, it's just so self-evidently not. And you'll find a lot like that. Um, one of the things that I didn't say last week, and I probably should, both for the books that we accept, and by, by we accept, I will say, if you haven't already guessed, absolutely, I accept the books that are in what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament as scripture. So that is uh, not only what I believe, that is the formal stance of this church. Um, you don't have to believe it, but get used to the fact that we're going to, and that's the, the basis that we operate on. There are those who will automatically discount every book in the Bible. It's not what it seems to be. And I, I alluded to this briefly last week that um, I was reading uh, a reference and, uh, last week, and it said, most scholars agree. And I, I just loved that phrase. Anytime anybody says most scholars agree, um, be really, really skeptical of whatever follows, because that's not real, no matter what field you're in. But in this case, most scholars agree this book um, is, should be dated in the second or third century AD, about a book that I would consider to be in the New Testament, and therefore definitely in the first century. Who are those most scholars that they're talking about? And this is a question you should ask yourself. In fact, when you read books like that or references like that, you should ask yourself, who's, who's actually writing that? Where are they coming from? What is their bias? Everybody has one. I just own mine. I accept the scripture as scripture. That's a bias. Now, I think I can back it up academically, but 
I will admit, I do accept it that way. So if we begin a conversation today about whether uh, Peter is actually Peter, the book, the letters, actually written by Peter, I'm going to start with a conclusion. Because it's not the first time I've looked at this. You may very well be the same way. And there are those who start with a conclusion that it cannot possibly be what we say it is. It cannot possibly be legitimately written by those authors. And they tend to be pretty broad. And they're gonna, they're gonna cut a wide swath and, and include basically the entire New Testament. I would suggest to you that that is, from an academic perspective, that is uh, fallacious to say the least, dishonest to say more. Um, you simply cannot start with that broad a generalization and claim to be objective. Because what's gonna happen is any evidence that would contradict that, you're going to, from the very beginning, throw away. Why? Because you've already decided it's not possible. Usually, those are also the people who will say any account of a miracle automatically can be discounted. Now, why would they say that? Because they don't believe in miracles. Yeah, it's literally that simple. So be careful when you read statements like that. Um, it is absolutely fine for us to look at scholarship. Christians need never be afraid of truth, ever. We never should be afraid of facts. We serve the truth. I mean, that's one of his titles. So why would we be afraid of that? But let's make sure we're not taken in by people who claim to be giving the truth and in fact are simply given a bias. Um, you'll find the same kind of a thing with many of the non-canonical books. So, for example, uh, a few years ago, and about five years before that, and about ten years before that, and I don't remember any, but I'm sure it was happening before that as well, um, oddly enough, each one of those times, the Gospel of Thomas was discovered. How many times can it be discovered, do you suppose? Gospel of Thomas has been known for centuries and discounted for centuries because we know it was written centuries after the events of the New Testament. Therefore, no, Thomas did not write that. So when we know something is untrue, there's, there's an attribution of authorship that is simply not possible unless you believe that somehow uh, Thomas was allowed to live to four or five hundred years. And I honestly have never met anybody that buys that, even the ones supporting the Gospel of Thomas. Be careful about hearing, especially, and forgive me, I'm going to call one of them out, especially the National Geographic. National Geographic, about 20, 25 years ago, uh, took a left turn towards the National Enquirer. And a lot of the stuff you're going to see, particularly TV documentaries, have that quality very much. The research, in quotes, is extraordinarily unprofessional. And just shake a lot of salt over it. If you want to listen to it, feel free. But don't be taken in because it's got 
for example, the National Geographic Society backing it up, or by the way, the Discovery Channel. They tend to go together. And I like a lot of Discovery Channel stuff. I'm not slamming it. I'm just saying they're not known for their biblical scholarship. Okay? So research it. Ask yourself, who is writing this? What are their biases? By the way, who's paying for it? If you've ever done any kind of research in any field, you know that whoever's paying for it, oddly enough, most of the time, their, their biases, their bents are the ones that research is going to end up supporting. It's just amazing how consistent that is. Can I ask a question? Sure. And then the non-canonical books. Non-canonical, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Non-canon. Non-canon, yeah. In the Catholic Bible, they have some books that we don't okay. have. So um, what are those? Yeah, we addressed that a little bit last week, but I'll go ahead and hit it again because we've got I'm sorry, I'm several. Sorry. Okay, we've got several who weren't. You guys were not, correct? Mm -hmm. So here's the schedules okay. from last week. I should give you one. So. It's what we uh, refer to, what everybody refers to as the apocrypha. The what? The apocrypha. That's the general term for all of those books. I actually taught a class on this about two years ago. It was a two-session class. So it wasn't one of the longer ones. But <coughs> so that's all the extra books, you mean? Well, I wouldn't, I, I'm not going to use that terminology. Okay. The apocrypha are a set of books that are focused on the intertestamental period. So the time between Malachi and the Gospels. Okay. Some of them are historical, some of them are poetic, some of them are supposedly prophetic. Um, I've read them, I've even, I, I haven't really studied them the way I have the New Testament, but I've read them closely. I don't see anything in them that's particularly dangerous. Um, however, Throughout the history of the church, for the first 15 and a half centuries, no one considered these to be canonical. And they were around that long because there, there is evidence that they actually, or at least most, actually date back to that intertestamental period. They're very ancient documents. Um, we have a lot of history. We have letters. We have um, treatises. We even have books that were written uh, a thousand years before Christ. So ancient doesn't mean holy. It doesn't mean inspired. It just means old, right? These books, for a variety of reasons, were never accepted as scripture. Um, number one, they don't really fit either Old or New Testament. Number two, there's never been a consensus either uh, in the Old Testament of the rabbis or for the New Testament of the church. Um, so they're just books. They don't fit into the canon? Well, again, you gotta, you got to listen to the, what the canon means. Right. Okay. The canon is someone's judgment that that book fits the standard right. and therefore should be considered inspired. Um, you want to be beware of a book that one person or one small group says fits. For example, one uh, denomination within Christianity. Uh, because clearly what's happening in those situations is they got an axe to grind. Uh, for example, 
in the late 60s, there was a, a rather vocal movement, although very, very small and concentrated, to declare all writings of Martin Luther King Jr. to be canonical. Didn't know that? No. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can you guess who was pushing that? What? The Lutheran Church. No, no absolutely Martin, not. They Martin Luther King. Near. Junior. Oh, Martin Luther King. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not Martin Luther. But not even King. I mean, that's the guy's father. Junior. No, not Martin Luther. But not Luther. <clears throat> so it, it was proponents of the civil rights movement. Okay, that's fine. No one else. And of course, all these other criteria that the other books meet, not even close. And I think a case could be made, by the way, that Luther would have been, Martin Luther King Jr. would have been horrified that people were doing that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very concentrated group of people. They want that proclaimed to have that status to push their agenda. I happen to agree with most of their agenda. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make those documents scripture. Now, in the case of the Apocrypha, no one in the church, um, at least no, I mean, no one, I, there's, there's someone who believed anything was canonical. No one of note, and certainly no um, consensus within the church ever existed for 15 centuries that these books were canonical, that they were scripture. And then the, the early Martin Luther, not the King Jr., the Martin Luther, um, declared that they were not because he was a teacher, he was a professor. And someone asked the question, and he said, no, absolutely not. Um, at that time, he was pretty much the voice of the Reformation. So whatever he said got printed and spread around. So it didn't take long, roughly a year, before the Roman Catholic Church, who disagreed in principle with anything and everything Martin Luther said, called a council and declared, guess what? Yes, they are. For the first 15 centuries, no one did. The Roman Catholic Church historically, forgive me, I know what they teach. If I believed it, I'd be Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church began Roughly 580 with Gregory the Great. For a thousand years, it didn't teach that. In fact, said, no, they're not. It wasn't until Luther said, yes, they are, or, or no, they're not, that they changed their mind and said, yes, they are. It was very, very clearly a reaction to Luther. Now, if you're studying with a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, not quite the same thing, if you're studying with a Roman Catholic and you're concerned about the Bible, we mentioned last week there's one version that we encourage you to use. Anybody remember what it was? Nope. Because some of them, now I, I, my master's is from a Jesuit university, and the professors, not surprisingly, were all Catholic theologians. None of them had a problem with the New American Standard. But most Roman Catholics would say, what? Oh, that's your Bible. 
And in order for it to be their Bible, something has to be on it. The imprimatur. The imprimatur. The imprimatur is a stamp of approval by a high official of the Roman Church. We talked last week about the today's English version, which more colloquially was known as Good News for Modern Man. That actually does have the imprimatur of the then Archbishop of the, the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and he was actually a cardinal at the time as well. And so you can buy copies of it with the imprimatur on it. I have one on my shelf. So if someone says, well, but I want to study our Bible, no problem. So we pull that out. Here it is. Now, I will say to you, if someone wants to study with you out of a Roman Catholic Bible, um, unless you're saying you're studying the Apocrypha, which by and large we don't accept, I don't have an issue with that. There are many. There's not a Roman Catholic Bible. There are many English translations with the Roman Catholic imprimatur. And the vast majority of them are, well, some are really, really good, some are good, some are okay, but on the same basis as the ones that we would look at. Some of them, the scholarship was frankly kind of cut and pasted together. Some of them was extraordinarily high scholarship in the translation. Generally, those can be bad, but none of them is intentionally biased, and there's no particular passages that you're going to run into that are going to be a problem. So by all means, someone says, well, I want to use this one. Go for it. Unless it's in Latin, in which case most of you are going to have a little bit of problem. I would omit to struggling with it myself. But other than that, don't worry about it. There is really only one book that falls into, or one Bible in quotes, that falls into the category that would be considered biased translations, which is almost oxymoronic, because a true translation is not biased. So you'll find denominations will favor one over another. Some, uh, particularly with the old standbys, uh, some uh, denominations and some cults, insist, for example, on the King James Version. Unfortunately, it's 500 years old, which means way out of date, and the scholarship wasn't the best. It was an early attempt. It was the first uh, legal attempt at translating the, uh, the Bible into English, um, meaning they didn't kill the translators. And there's places it's just flat, poorly translated. But there was no deceit intended. It's simply a smaller group of people. The, the typical translation team is going to be a minimum of about 70 scholars for, the, for a New Testament book. So there's so many checks and balances of someone who, who might have a bias. That, no, there's going to be 60 people saying, no, 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 no. Bringing them back to the actual scholarship so that it's a good translation. The one exception is put out by the Watchtower Society. Does anybody know who that is? Watchtower Society is the uh, official name for what we call the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they are not a church, by the way. If you use the word church to describe them, they will get mad at you. 
Um, they do not have church buildings. They have kingdom halls. Um, they are definitely not Christian. They don't claim to be Christian. And their translation, the New World Bible, is definitely intentionally mistranslated in several places. And here's how you check that. Number one, I mean, the intentional part, uh, yeah, history says these guys got together and they had specific doctrines. They could not let the Bible speak for itself because it contradicts their doctrines. So they changed the translation. Um, <clears throat> how can we be sure we're right, meaning New American Standard, New International, um, today's English, uh, English Standard Version, whatever, and they're wrong. The real simple way, by the way. Anybody guess? Well, it does require Greek, right? So whoever's going to check it has to be able to read Greek. And they have to be able to read Greek at a pretty good level. I mean, way beyond where I am. But they don't have to be Christian. So what if we get a non-Christian group of Greek scholars and say, here's the Greek language, here's, here's the documents, here's this translation. What do you think? And when they unanimously say, that's nonsense, then you've got a pretty good idea because you've got, for our purposes at least, an unbiased group. Does that make sense? And that's been done many times. I don't know of another translation that really would fit the biased version. There's some that's just not as good. Um, if you've got one that's written by one person, it's not going to be as good. There's no one person whose level of scholarship exceeds the 70 scholars working together. Um, there's just no one that's that advanced. So you're going to want to get one of those that's got the better quality going into it. And where, by the way, do you find those things out? How do you know I'm not making all of this up? Because I can be creative. Well, but where do you read for what I'm talking about? Because I'm not just talking the text. I'm talking how many people translated the text. Yeah, every one of them has got translator's notes. Not to mention, we've got this thing called the Internet today. <laughs> it is so much easier than 30 years ago. So, yeah, just Google the translation. You're going to get all sorts of different articles. Be careful. Read who's writing those. Make sure those aren't, bi um, uh, aren't biased. But when you find 10 of them all saying exactly the same thing in terms of factual statements, and you find it also in the editor's notes of that translation, you got a pretty good idea that that's where it is. And these things weren't done in the proverbial closet. New American Standard, where was that translated? Yeah, it's this little weird town in a, in a faraway place called La Mirada on Beach Boulevard. So, I mean, you can go there. I've done a tour of it. You can go there and say, yeah, you want to call him, but uh, i just like to learn more about the process. And they love 
showing people around. They love it when people are interested in it. And it's still functioning. We got to watch. Walkman uh, Foundation, is that what you would look at? The Walkman Foundation is the actual corporation. It's a nonprofit corporation that um, there is no such thing as a new American standard company, if you will. Um, yeah. So the Lockman Foundation is the group that does it. So there, there's That's a place like that for every one of them. Okay. Let's go on to today's stuff. I think we've covered and recovered the canon. Oh, uh, this is a little handout that I gave on the canon. Uh, the bottom part is just some dates for the process of uh, the canon being recognized by the church as a whole. So I will pass these around. Um, don't worry about the top part uh, until you take Old Testament survey sometime. Um, tell you what, I'll just start over here. If you would pass them around, but make sure it gets over there as well. Probably got that last week, though. Yeah, those of you who are, okay. this is for those who are first time tonight. And by the way, nobody yelled at me. Thanks very much. You left me out here on my own. So here's the role, and uh, I do appreciate if you'd sign in every week. Uh, no one kicks you out of the class, or for that matter, even checks while you're doing it, if you don't, but it helps. Um, and if you weren't here last week, I put out every week, either tonight or tomorrow morning, a, an email that has the handouts in electronic form. And then if I'm going to be sick, if, I, if I'm sick and I know I'm not going to be able to be here, I will also shoot an email saying, hey guys, don't show up, I'm sick. Um, it's just a way of trying to communicate with you. So if you want to be on that email list and you weren't here last week, please not only give me your name, but print your email address extraordinarily legibly. All right? And uh, then I will add you to it. I do not add people who do not tell me to add. Okay, so start over here. If you would just make sure it gets circulated around everywhere. There you go. Oh, okay. Types of Bible translations. That's a whole other one. Yeah, this is the bad one. Have you guys ever tried to uh, take a Word document that was created, say, '94, and open it today? Yeah. This is frustrating sometimes. I had more recent work documents on some of these handouts. I don't now. I have no idea where they were. Okay, tonight we're going to be talking about the first installment, the first group, if you will, of books in the New Testament. And here on, um, we will be just dealing with that. Meaning, we're going to be talking about these books. And... Uh, this is a format I'm going to be using. Uh, so you'll get one of these each week. And if you want to know what it's about or what the topic is, then go back to that schedule I gave you because that's what it's about. The Synoptic Gospels, as you can see, because it starts off with the books that are included in this category. And it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I actually just noticed, I never, I never asked you this, this evening, are there questions you want to make sure we cover tonight? Did anybody have any? Okay. What does that word mean? That's a Y, by the way. It's not Hebrew. 
Thank you. It means a summary. A summary? Mm, close. That would be a synopsis. And it comes from the same words. Uh, what? Similar. Similar. Definitely means similar. Look at the words and see if you recognize the roots of words we use in English. What? So seen, you say is together. Can you give us an example of that? Uh, synonym is a word that, that is a synonym. Now you have to know the definition I, I, I of it. I confuse them now with synonym. Synonyms are words that don't match each other. They, they, oh my gosh. I'm just letting you go. I know. They mean the same thing. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. So same. they are together in their meaning synonym. So synthesis, right? You take this and this, you bring them together and the blend of them is called a synthesis. Synthetic, synthetic are things that we have made that way. So yeah, that's why N means together. What does that mean? Seen. No, this part. Vision. Vision. Yeah, seen. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said seen. So we're this again. So optic, yeah, it's visual, the look, or to see, depending on noun or verb. So a, to synoptic is they are looking together. Now the reason they're called synoptic is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the Gospels, are covering extraordinarily similar ground. The stuff that they cover is covered by each other, uh, with some exceptions. For example, Mark is, is much shorter than the other two, so he's going to have less in it. Uh, Matthew and Luke are going to cover similar things, but they're not exactly the same. So uh, how many of you remember memorizing the uh, Christmas event uh, scriptures in plays in school? Anybody ever do that? So if you've read the Matthew account and you read the Luke account, you know they say different things. They're not contradictory, they're simply giving you different pieces of information. And there's a reason for that. So the synoptics look at the same things, but with a specific perspective, each one. And this is where I illustrate that by showing you a um, harmony of the Gospels. So a harmony of the Gospels is where you take all of the Gospel accounts, you arrange what's in the Gospels chronologically. You do understand that not all books of the Bible start chronologically and internally go chronologically. They, I mean, it, it, we do that in English too. It's, it's not chronological unless it claims to be chronological. And so there's times when things are, are put out of chronological order because of the intent of the writer. So what scholars will do is say, okay, we, we're going to put together a timeline of what we know from these Gospels, from the, from the other Gospel, from other accounts, and then we're going to look at what these authors say about that. So I just randomly opened this looking for three lines. Um, and as soon as I found three lines, I stopped. Now I know what it's about. This is section 199, the seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees. Can you guess this was uh, originally written? about 100 years ago, <laughs> seven woes. 
Uh, we don't really talk like that today. Um, and then you'll find Matthew writing an extraordinarily amount of it. You'll find just a little bit in Mark, and you'll see the skipping thing. It's because what's across here is describing the same thing. It's either quoting the same thing or looking at something the same way, description of it, whatever. Um, so they tend to arrange it that way so that you can come down as you're reading this, you can come across and say, well, what did Mark say? What did Luke say about it? So you can, by doing this, you can read all four Gospels at the same time chronologically. You will repeat. That's the whole point of this, is you're repeating the narrative uh, from different authors' perspective. So um, I brought these in. This one is, um, for those of you who are, are familiar with such things, this is the uh, Thomas and Gundry, which is a more recent um, harmony. I think it was written in the late 90s or early 2000s. Um, and this particular one, because you can do the harmony, see, with any translation because it's about the passage, not the text. Um, and so this one is New American Standard, and I know that because it's blue. And it says on Amazon, the blue ones are New American Standard. I also know it because it says New American Standard right there. Um, brown, on the other hand, New International. So if you're an NIV person and you prefer to read that, you can read this and get the whole account by simply picking this up. And it is a fascinating way to study the Gospels. If you go to um, a college level and study the life of Christ at college or graduate level, 100% guarantee you're going to do this. Yes, sir? Is Amazon the best place to go? To buy one, I go to Amazon simply because they've always got them used. And I'm cheap. Now, all six of these I took from T4, which is the classroom across the hallway outside that door, where we have a Bible resource section. It is not a library, folks, because if you're looking for anything besides Bible study resources, you will be disappointed. It's not in there. But we have a great many different Bible study resources, and we have six copies, three NIV, three New American Standard, of the Harmony. And uh, you can go in there and read it, or you can pick it up and check it out. Look on the top shelf. It's generally somebody sticks it behind books, but it's up there. There's a little card catalog. Pick out a card, write down the title of it and your name and the date. That'll do us. We're somewhat informal here. Please bring it back. Uh, we've got a little thing that says, you know, two weeks. No one is gonna yell and scream at you in two weeks in a day. But unfortunately, uh, people will frequently go in there and take them out and not check them out and we don't have any idea. I have personally replaced the resource section twice, uh, each time to the tune of several thousand dollars, uh, which we don't have to do over and over again. So by all means, get them, play with them before you put money out if you're not sure you're gonna to wanna to use that as your own resource. Um, but then bring it back and let somebody else do that, okay? And every other kind of Bible study resource, or almost every other kind, is over there. We have no electronic versions. So, sorry, no software. But paper stuff, it's over there. All right. 
Let's take a look then at this form. This is a format we're going to use throughout this class, and it starts with the uh, books included. That's Matthew. Um, this says Matthew, Luke, and John, which I have no idea how that got down there. Someone typing that out was trying to figure out if I actually look. John Mark. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. Um, the authors are, guess what? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not always true. Um, the letters to Timothy are written not by Timothy, right? The letter to the Galatians was certainly not a committee work by the Galatian church. So that's why it says, no, the authors are actually the people the book's named after, okay? And so it is technically the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, and the gospel according to Luke. We know a bit about these people. Matthew, also known as Levi, was one of the 12. He was a tax collector. He was a uh, collaborator, an extortionist. Um, something I love when you consider who else was uh, on the 12. Jesus was amazing in his selection and how he combined people. Um, obviously, by this time, he was no longer that. Um, Mark not an apostle, but a close associate of several, um, was on the first missionary journey with Paul, bagged that journey, so Paul would no longer go out with him. Uh, you can see this in, in the book of Acts, by the way. Um, was Barnabas's cousin, and Barnabas, the guy who got Paul and said, let's go do something when nobody else would talk to him in the church, um, did the same thing for Mark. So when Paul said, no way, He's not going. Paul and Silas went one direction. Barnabas and Mark went another. We had two evangelism trips going out into the Mediterranean. And uh, we do know from Paul's later writings, somewhere along the line, they reconciled. And Paul considered him, I believe the phrase was, like a son. Um, I'd have to go back and check the exact phrase. But uh, very much uh, reconciled. Uh, Mark was also, however, closely associated with Peter. And um, we call him John Mark frequently because he is thought to be the uh, young man, John Mark, who was a character in some of the New Testament stories. Now, there is no biblical evidence of this. There are only early historical references that the church within a hundred years or so thought this was true. So you can pay your money, take your choice. Um, you remember a guy who was uh, out in Gethsemane and he was uh, in a robe and of course it was the middle of the night, there's a commotion, people are coming out, they've been sleeping, they're coming out, what's going on? And they find out that the uh, temple guard and the Romans are arresting Jesus. And one of those guys, well, pretty much all of them who are followers of Jesus, were fairly anxious to get away from the guards. One in particular was only wearing that outer robe. And the guard reached out to grab him, and the scripture says the robe came off, and he ran away naked. And yes, during the 70s, that was referred to as the first streaker. Um, sorry, I had to throw in a date back there. Um, it is believed that this was John Mark. Now, we have no biblical evidence of that, only historical 
and historical is not inspired by God. So, like I said, have fun with it. Um, he is also thought to be um, part of the family who owned the building the upper room was in. What does the upper room refer to, by the way? Anybody remember? The Last Supper. The Last Supper. Jesus tells his followers, go make preparations. Tell them we're going to be observing Passover there. This is what would have happened with people who didn't live there. And Jerusalem was literally swollen, some accounts, by a million people at Passover time. People came, Jews came from all over the Mediterranean world, and it was the life ambition of every Jew to make that pilgrimage and celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. To this very day, uh, a greeting uh, or a, a, uh, a way of saying goodbye if you don't know you're going to see that person again in the near future among Jews is till next year in Jerusalem. And it's a reference to trying to be in Jerusalem and celebrate Passover together. Um, so it's believed that Mark was the son of the family and therefore, again, closely related to pretty much all of the apostles because clearly these were followers of Jesus in providing for him that way. We, we don't know. So there's a lot of stuff like that that you'll see, and you want to filter it through the Bible and simply distinguish what does the Holy Spirit tell us? What do other people think? There's no contradiction there, but let's realize there's a difference between what some people think based on a document that was discovered and had been written 100, 150 years later, and what the Holy Spirit has told us through Scripture. Substantive difference. Agreed? Okay, Luke is also known as uh, Luke the physician or the Greek physician. Uh, and because he was a physician. And yes, they did actually have physicians, per se, in that time. Uh, you can imagine their, their level of medical science was rather different than ours. But they actually performed uh, some pretty advanced operations, including brain surgery. Um, uh, what, is the, uh, what is it called when they draw a burr hole? To release pressure? Shunt. Other than painful. <laughs> what? Well, the, yeah, the shunt is what you put in, but there's a word that I'm not remembering that... No. It just describes the procedure. Um, and they did that. Um, now, they didn't really know why they did it. Like today, we can see in an x-ray swelling in the brain. We need to let the blood out. So we do it, and we do it a lot more... Uh, meticulously. They did it like this. And, and their, their version of anesthesia was either get them drunk, hit them over the head, or yeah, why do they need anesthesia? Um, as you can imagine, by the way, the death toll was pretty high for <laughs> such surgeries. But these were, these were trained academics. These were people who were, uh, for the day, highly educated people. Um, and it's interesting because we know Luke's presence in his account, not in the Gospel of Luke, because he doesn't show up in the Gospel of Luke, but in the book of Acts, because the pronouns changed. They did this, they did this, they did this. All of a sudden it was, and we, and then for a section it's we, and then he leaves the group again, and they. So, I mean, we actually can tell from the book of Acts 
which he also wrote when he was with Paul and and others on, on Paul's entourage, if you will. The dates. <clears throat> the dates range, um, you'll notice an overlap. 50 to 70 AD for Matthew. The reason is because of purpose and background we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, 60 to 70 AD for Mark and uh, 60 AD-ish for Luke. You notice Luke is a lot more narrow. There's not that decade or two decades. The reason for that is because Luke is volume one of a two-volume set, with the book of Acts being volume two. And they were written for a purpose, and that purpose was as a, uh, a defense, legal defense, uh, or at least part of it, when Paul was on trial before the Roman court. And so we know the dates approximately of when that happened, and we know that this was used as part of the defense for that. So it wasn't 70 AD because it was way too late. Does that make sense? Now, there are, there are theories. I'm going to go into this real quick. There are theories as to why these three are so similar. Why are they synoptic? Can anybody think of reasons why they might be? Okay, they're, they're describing the same events. They all saw the same events, or Luke didn't, but had access to people who did. So there's a good one. What else? The people that were, they were written to, um, the things that were different, um, because they needed to see something different, like Matthew was written to the Jews, and Luke was written okay. to the Greeks. So uh, the, the differences are accounted for by the varied purposes. But the basics are the same, and you need to have them to get the whole story. Okay. So the basics are because they all considered them to be basics. All right. What else? Why is not John? We'll get to that <laughs> next week, because that's John. Well, you know, if the Holy Spirit inspired them, then you have to kind of factor that into everything, don't you? Um, however, it is clear that the Holy Spirit and his inspiration did not bowl over the human factors. You can tell what Paul wrote versus what John wrote. Paul was a well-educated student of Greek and several other languages. John was a backwoods fisherman from Galilee who was exiled to a Greek-speaking area and picked it up uh, from the streets. And it it reads that way. Paul's is very academic. John's is, uh, Paul's is, is doctoral dissertation. John's is Reader's Digest. Okay? So the, the Spirit did not overrule that. <coughs> what if they actually knew each other? Suppose it's possible that three leaders in the church doing pretty much the same thing in the same area might actually know each other. Anybody see that as a possibility? Okay. I see it not only as a possibility, but as absurd to think they didn't, but I won't go quite that far. Um, what? Well, no. 
because Mark and Luke were not apostles. So Mark and John, maybe, but not Mark and Luke. However, or, or, um, Mark and, yeah, Mark and Luke were not. Matthew was. Um, however, they're all doing something similar. They're all doing it roughly at the same time. They know each other. If I ask five people to observe what happens on Sunday morning and then write an account of it, you think there's going to be similarities? Would there be differences? Of course. There's going to be exactly the same things we've been talking about. Their language is going to be a little bit different. Their grammar will be different. Spelling will probably be different. Um, they may, one of them may have been really focused on this thing that happened and kind of glossed over this and, and the other the other way around. So this one included this, this one didn't, but it included this, and this one didn't. The most obvious answer to me of what's called the, um, the synoptic problem, how, how do we get three that overlap so much and yet are different, is they were writing together. <laughs> they collaborated. Why would they not? They knew each other. They had access to each other. They respected it and worked together with each other. Um, and yet they were writing for different reasons. So why would they not collaborate? And if they did, this is exactly what you would see. Now, you will hear, if you study this, what's called the documentary hypothesis. Anybody hear this? Documentary hypothesis uh, posits there are uh, three or four, depending on which branch of that hypothesis you buy, um, source documents, who in turn all have one other source document, which of course was not first century, written by an apostle or anybody had anything to do with the apostles. And that hundreds of years later, people who called themselves Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excuse me, I don't think that's the first time I've ever done that, um, wrote these accounts based on these documents which were in turn based on this other source. What do you think? How many of you have heard of Occam's Razor? Occam's Razor is a logic or philosophy principle. Depends on what you think of it, I suppose. It basically says the simplest explanation is always the way to write. Why complicate things all the time? look at things, usually the most obvious is what it is. The most obvious is these guys wrote it when they said they wrote it, or when it was believed to be written. They wrote it together, and they are exactly who they said they were, and they, they knew each other. The documentary hypothesis is extraordinarily complex, and it is necessitated by one basic assumption. Can anybody guess what that assumption is? Think back to a little discourse we had about half an hour ago. To disprove. To, to That's purpose. Yeah, I know. That's why I... Yeah, the assumption... Assumption is that it is not. They can't possibly really be scripture. They can't possibly really be written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They cannot possibly really be first, docu first century documents. Now, assumption, mind you, 
not conclusion. Because they don't start with evidence. They start with the assumption and work from there. I find that illogical, irrational, to start with an assumption that has zero base and then build everything else on the assumption. So I think the documentary hypothesis, as you can probably guess, is nonsense. But everybody gets to pay their money and take their choice. Um, the purpose. Matthew was written to present Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. He uses that phrase, kingdom, over and over and over, far more than any other book in the New Testament. Mark, very succinctly, uh, and we'll see why that word is in there later, presents the works of Jesus. Jesus did this, then he did this, then he did this, then he did this. So Matthew, presenting Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews, who do you suppose his target audience was? The Jews. Because what do the Romans care if he's King of the Jews? If he's the Messiah? Mark writes in a style explicitly designed to appeal to a cultural group. Just very hard and fast. Here's the facts, nothing but the facts. Who do you suppose that was? Hmm? Oh, no, no, no. The Greeks were ethereal all over the place. They wanted to overthink everything. So the scholars? The... We're not talking scholars. We're talking the the general people that this was written to. To the Gentiles. They were definitely Gentiles. It's the Romans. The Romans, you see, were famous for saying to the Greeks, yeah, all the flowery philosophy, real cool, we'll pay to teach our kids. Right now, we just conquered you, shut up and do what we told you. They were the military superpower of the time, period. But they were not academics. And so, I mean, they were engineers, and they were military specialists, and that was pretty much it. And they did amazing things in both of those fields. Everything else, they farmed out to the Greeks that they had conquered, and let the Greeks be flowery and do all the other stuff. So when Mark goes, you know, like this, it's a style that would have been very appealing to Roman readers. It is believed, because of that, and because of his close association with Peter, it is believed that he was writing similar to Luke as a, a sort of an apologetic a support to Peter, who was also imprisoned at least once, probably more than once, in Rome. Um, and Paul and Peter were both, in the end, executed in Rome. Um, now, Mark doesn't say he's doing that in the Gospel of Mark. So we're, we're simply saying it looks like it. There's no question, however, that style and who it would appeal to. Luke, a very uh, well-written confirmation of the formal teaching given to a guy named Theophilus. He addresses it to Theophilus, which is uh, Greek for, anybody know? Theos, theology, God, philos, what? Friend of God. Or Friend or God. lover of God. One who loves God. Um, so a title or... Uh, it, was a, it was a description that was used for Gentiles who 
were uh, favorable to Jews and would study the Old Testament. Uh, people like Cornelius, the first of the Roman converts, recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, he would have been considered a God lover. But they were not Jews. They did not go the whole way except super circumcision and the law and become Jews. So many think, and I tend to go in that direction, that this was a title rather than a name. However, it could have been a name too. Because remember, names in cultures like that were frequently given as descriptions and changed to describe people in new settings. Either way, Luke and Acts were two parts of the same story. Read the end of Luke, start with the beginning of Acts, you'll see the seam. It's like watching uh, a TV show one night that ends with, stay tuned tomorrow night. And then the next night you start and it says earlier or previously, and it gives you this little synopsis thing and then shoots in. Does exact, it's probably where the TV people got the idea. Um, so Luke is writing at a very academic level, because that's who he is. He's writing to Gentiles, and yes, to Romans, but not to the common Romans. He's writing to the people who will have influence over judging Paul. Probably beginning with the Syrian um, incarceration, which was 60 to 62 AD, which is why this tends to be put in the 60s range. And then, if you read the end of the book of Acts, you'll find Paul says, uh, yeah, I'm done with this. I appeal to Caesar. He was a, a Roman citizen. He had the right to do that. And they had to put him on a ship and send him to Caesar, who, by the way, probably didn't know who he was and didn't care. So, in all likelihood, he sat around, and history, not scripture, says he sat around for approximately two years before Caesar finally got around to seeing him. He was in probably house arrest. He was not a high-profile um, captive at that time. Two years later, in the Neronian persecution, absolutely. And then when we talk to chains, he's talking real iron chains. Um, and that one's the one that ended with his beheading. Okay, the background, we've already kind of touched on it. Matthew, written by the apostle from his own personal experiences. Uh, Mark was a close friend or a close associate of the apostles. Uh, and he wrote, by the way, evangelistically, there's a, a push for uh, an evangelistic response. Luke, written from material gain from firsthand witnesses, probably as part of Paul's defense, which I've already been laying. One of the fun things, and I think I touched on this last week, but um, in the book of Luke, you'll find in, in the uh, descriptions later, um, Luke is the book that tells us the most about Mary. Luke's a Gentile from Asia Minor, what we would have called Turkey. And Mary's this young woman from Galilee, which is like, forgive me, um, backwoods Mississippi. Um, how did that happen? Mary would have moved back, and, and history says she did move back to Galilee, after the resurrection. When, when the church was dispersed, Mary goes home. She grew up there. She has family there. She has a home there. She goes home. Luke is about a day's journey north in Caesarea for two years as he's writing this document. 
waiting for Paul to finally get seen by some Roman official who will process him. And we know from the book of Acts, the reason it's strung out that long was what? Anybody remember? They were looking for a bribe. They waited for two years for a bribe. It took a, a change in the governor before they finally said, whatever, send him on. And, and him, they were going to release him. And he said, no, no, no. I appeal to Caesar. He wanted to go to Rome. So Luke has this period of time very close geographically and access to an old woman named Mary. And when you read his gospel, he got that from somewhere. Now the Holy Spirit could absolutely have simply given him that. But many believe, and I tend to be one of them, because it just sounds cool, that Luke, during some of those times, traveled down to Galilee and spent time with Mary, getting to know her, interviewing her. And as an academic, he would have taken notes. And that's why we know from the Gospel of Luke things that Mary was thinking, feeling, and more about her experiences. Again, you can go with that or not. It doesn't make any difference to the role the scripture plays in our life. Content summary. The emphasis in Matthew is on Jesus as the Messiah King. His preaching career uh, was part of it. Um, his de the decline in popularity. He was Messiah. He was King. All of a sudden we want him crucified. Whoa. What was that about? There was a very concerted effort among the two leading groups uh, of Jewish leaders. Sadducees, which were the priestly class. Pharisees, uh, who were uh, the, the teachers of the law. Sadducees associated with the temple, Pharisees associated with the synagogues. They came together in the, um, uh, the, the high court and several times in scripture it records they were plotting in order to get Jesus arrested. So one of the things that they did is constantly try to trip him up. And as you read, you will find Jesus did not buy into the popular version of the Messiah being like David. Now, when we say like David, we read our stuff into it. So when you think of David, what do you think of? King. King? What else? What stories? Shepherd. Shepherd. Wrote Psalm 23 and half the other Psalms. Warrior. Warrior. What was his first warrior experience? Little kid with a slingshot killing the champion of the whole Philistine army. But David was not seen by the Jews at this time as that. David was seen as the emperor. He built an empire, not just a kingdom. It spanned the majority of the eastern part of the Mediterranean, what we would call the Middle East, down into northern Africa. It was a military empire. He was a military conqueror. They have been conquered by every nation that comes along for 700 years. Currently, it's the Romans, among the most brutal of all of them. They wanted David back. They wanted someone who with God's divine help would drive the Romans out. 
and reestablish the glory of Israel. And by the way, put them on top. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. They did not like that. So there was a pretty concerted effort, and if you read through, through this book, you'll see it kind of going downhill. Um, kingdom of heaven, I referred to that earlier, is actually, that that's phrase is used 33 times in the Gospel of Matthew, way more than any other book. Mark writes in a very crisp, action-oriented style. Um, Jesus was, is presented as the Son of God, um, but there is no birth narrative. He's not presented as the son of Joseph and Mary. There's no genealogical interest. No one cared in the Roman world if his Jewish bona fides is good. So why would Mark put that in? So he didn't. Instead, he focuses on him as the son of God because the Romans were impressed with that kind of power. Um, and he uses this one word. The Greek word is ephthys. And it means uh, immediately, the very next thing. Directly is an old word. My father used to word, use the word directly. It's like, what are you saying? And it meant now. Next thing that happens, it better be that. You better do that directly. And I, it's like, I don't know how to do something directly. I don't know what that means. Um, whatever. Um, if these, this happened, then this. This happened, then this. This happened, then this. Again, playing into that style that would have been very, very um, not only acceptable but liked by the Romans. In Luke, Jesus is presented as a person and as a savior. Not surprising if my hypothesis is correct and one of the contributors of information is his mother, human mother. Um, again, written from Mary's perspective. It contains the account of the virgin birth. It contains the account of the birth of John the Baptist. And if you remember, that too was uh, in large part a reminiscence of Mary. Because Mary is the cousin of Elizabeth. Mary finds out she's present, pregnant. She goes to her much older cousin. And it could easily have been aunt or whatever. Many cultures, I've, I've heard this many times with Filipinos will refer to people who are close to the family by family names. So um, we, we tend to take it at face value, but the bottom line is Mary knew her. Mary went to see her, and then we get the story of John the Baptist as a six-month-old um, uh, baby in the womb jumping for joy when Jesus is near, which obviously, I mean, we have the account that that's what happened. So obviously that had to be miraculous because babies don't do that, right? Um, but, you know, if we're talking virgin birth and all the other miracles, then that's not hard to understand. Um, that also tells us, by the way, that if you take it literally, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. That's pretty heavy stuff when you think about the way they interacted and the way they ended up. Um, it contains also, or I'm sorry, it was written in a literary style with historic emphasis, which goes back and kind of feeds the, the um, thread into the, the book that we will refer to in here as history. 
the history section, which is the book of Acts. Now, there's a number of specific passages, and since we don't have um, study guides, per se, for this class that you do in advance, one of the things that I'm recommending is, if you want to do some extra study for this, take now that you have this, and over the week, read these passages. By all means, read the whole thing. I mean, read all three books. Uh, there will be s much shorter sections later on, but, uh, you know, three books isn't that much. We call them books. They're not this. They're this books, okay? But if you want to just read some of the highlights, if you can say that about selected scriptures, uh, the birth narrative itself is in Matthew, the first two chapters, uh, Matthew's version of it. Um, in Luke, it is um, a chapter in. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. This is Jesus' introduction to teaching the masses. And it is a great, great summary of Jesus' teaching. Not just the early teaching, his teaching period. Um, and it tells you how, he, uh, how his teaching relates to the law. How many of you have heard there's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament? There's the law and there's grace. You know, there's the, there's the legalism and then there's Jesus' teaching. No. Everything Jesus taught was from the Old Testament. So we, we mischaracterize the Old Testament, select certain passages when we do that, and ignore the others, which are saying the same thing Jesus said. So when you read this part, you go back and you can see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself addressing his view of the Mosaic Law. And it was not dump it. He said, I did not come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. Not one mark. The phrase jot and tittle, uh, Hebrew jod and tittle, are little marks, kind of like our dotted I and crossed T. Except it's Hebrew, so they don't have I's and T's. Um, Jesus said, not even one of those is going to be done away in the law. The law is God's word. So fascinating uh, and extraordinarily powerful passage. Jesus' teaching on confronting uh, a sinning brother and sister, Matthew 18, gives us a model how to deal with each other when we have concerns about each other or even when we're having problems with each other. Um, and Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 19 where he recognizes the reality of divorce, dodges the setup where the Pharisees are trying to get him, uh, to trick him into saying something that's gonna turn the masses on. Uh, how many of you realize that divorce in uh, first century Judaism was more common than today? So we tend to think of that as a modern thing. No, the Pharisees taught um, The Mosaic Law said that if a man found his wife with uncleanness, he could divorce her. You put her away. Which, by the way, was a legal protection for the woman because it gave her legal status. She could at least pick up and move forward. Otherwise, she's simply abandoned. And generally, she's going to become a beggar or a prostitute, and she's not going to live long either way. So the Mosaic Law was not sexist and anti-women. You have to take from where it started. It was the other way. It was protecting women. So Jesus is asked, because he taught against divorce, um, 
why do you say that? Moses told us, write her a bill of divorcement. Well, what they said is, if you don't like her cooking, that's uncleanness. If you don't like the way she dressed today, that's considered uncleanness. It falls into the category. And the Pharisees basically just opened that little phrase up to basically anything you don't like. And oh, by the way, ladies, no, you didn't get to divorce. With one exception. Within the Israel, if a Jew, your husband, abandoned Israel, abandoned the law, and took up a lifestyle as a Gentile, then you were, most of the time, allowed to divorce. Otherwise, forget it. You didn't have those rights. <coughs> Jesus said, wrong. That is not the way God intended. And they said, well, why then is it in Moses? Why is it in the law? And he said, because of the hardness of your hearts. So it's a great example, not only of his teaching, but of his extraordinarily practical addressing of how did we get here from there? And frankly, of his willingness to just call a spade a spade. Tell them, yeah, it's because of you. It's because of the way you live. It's because of what you do with scripture. That's why that's in there. Um, in Mark, there's a disputed section. It's usually the one. There's a passage in Mark, I will say, and I'm trying to remember. It's Mark 9. Um, Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible. And the father of a sick child said, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. One of my favorite passages of scripture. So that should be in there, but I've never put it in. I apologize. Um, the last section is disputed and generally agreed upon as not actually part of the Gospel of Mark. And the reason we know this is, or, or believe this is, we have hundreds of years of fragments of copies of of documents, Mark, they didn't have printing presses, so scribes would copy it. Another scribe would copy, another scribe would copy. For hundreds of years, that section doesn't show up. It's not in there. All of a sudden, about 500 AD, I think that's the approximate time of that section. Uh, don't quote me on that. But all of a sudden, centuries later, it shows up. So the evidence suggests that someone, for some reason, centuries later, and this was not uncommon, by the way, but it was usually caught pretty easily, simply added some stories that they had heard and incorporated it into the text. Um, in this case, because the earlier manuscripts universally do not have it, most Bible scholars say, obviously, this was something added centuries later. It's not part of that document. Makes sense to me. You decide what you want. Finally, Luke is uh, the most referenced uh, account of Jesus' birth is in Luke 2. The genealogy of Jesus traced from Adam is in Luke 3. And that's fascinating, by the way, to see who's in that genealogy sometimes. Uh, there's women in it. Not just, not totally, it's a patriarchal society, but there's women in it. Um, fascinating women, too. But I won't give you that away. You can read it. Most of Jesus' parables are from the Gospel of Luke. It is known as the Gospel of the Parables. And um, Luke obviously enjoyed those and enjoyed passing those on to the people he was going to be writing to. Um, some of the others have some parables. Some even have some that are in Luke. But there are numerous of them that are in Luke only. So that's why it's typically seen as the parable gospel. Okay, 
Um, we're two minutes over right now. I'm going to let you go. If you've got children, thank you for being here. If you've got any questions, I'll hang for a little while. Otherwise, Lord willing, I'll see you next week.